Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Psalms, 118, 1 through 4. And the word of God reads, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. Good morning to each one. It is so good to be here, and I'm glad that the Lord has afforded us this opportunity to be able to worship him today. I hope that you have your Bibles open to the 118th Psalm. That's the uh, section, the text that we're going to study not only this morning, but also uh, this evening as well. And so I would direct your attention there. Do you know that it had been 140 years since the temple's destruction? 140 long years since Nebuchadnezzar entered into Jerusalem for the third time, took away the third group of uh, Jews into captivity and destroyed the walls and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. After 140 years of dwelling in captivity in a strange land, Israel finally was granted the ability to return home and to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. They returned under Ezra to work on the temple. They returned under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And the Bible tells us in the book of Nehemiah that as the people went about their work, they endured ridicule. They endured mocking. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, and again in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, the Bible tells us about the Sanballat and Tobiah, the Assyrians who sought to not only hinder but to completely destroy the work that they were doing in the service of God. And then later in Nehemiah chapter 6, once the walls had been finished, they recruited some within the walls. Some of Israel's own people began to turn their back and began to conspire against Nehemiah and against uh, those who were working for the cause of the Lord. But in spite of all of that opposition, in 52 days, the walls were finished. The work was done. And Nehemiah records for us that the completion of those walls around the city of Jerusalem They completely astounded the nations and astounded all of the people who witnessed and watched that work unfold. But that wasn't the end of it. Because in Nehemiah chapter 8, after the completion of the wall, the people, they they, uh, saw to a spiritual rebuilding, if you will. The first part of Nehemiah chapter 8, as you may recall, records the people standing and listening attentively as Ezra read from the law of God from morning until midday, and as the priests and others went around uh, 
giving the sense, as the Bible will say, explaining the meaning of what those passages were all about. In the process, they discovered that they had ceased to observe one of the feasts that God had commanded all the way back in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 39 through 44. And that feast is called the Feast of Tabernacles. The purpose for the Feast of Tabernacles was for the children of Israel to be reminded on a regular basis of their exodus from Egypt. It was for them to be reminded of the fact that God had delivered them from bondage, from captivity, and they had wandered, they had, um, they had dwelt in tents or tabernacles for a period of time after their redemption from Egypt. They hadn't kept that feast since the days of Joshua. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, they kept that feast once again. Now all of that because this seems to be the most likely background for the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a song of thanksgiving for victory. It is a song of thanksgiving for victory. And in this psalm, what we find is the cry for joy and thanks of the children of Israel as they think about not only their entire existence as a nation, but particularly as year after year the people would look back to the events that unfolded during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls and the temple and all of the, uh, all of the pressure and all of the, uh, the enemies that opposed them. And yet God gave them the victory. This psalm, Psalm 118, is the final psalm in the collection of psalms known as the Hillel or the Hallelujah Psalms. Hallelujah meaning literally praise the Lord. That collection spans from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. The psalm is an elaboration of Psalm 117, which is the shortest chapter in all of the Bible, which comes just before it. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. That's Psalm 117. The truth of the Lord and the mercy and the kindness of the Lord. That's the subject of Psalm 117. Psalm 118 will then take that subject and elaborate upon it greatly. The psalm will begin in the first four verses and it will end in the last two verses with a call to praise the Lord. And the reason why we're praising the Lord in Psalm 118 verses 1 to 4 and verse 28 and 29 is because his merciful kindness is great toward us. There is a very real sense in which Psalm 118 traces the history of Israel all the way from their slavery in Egypt to the joy and victory that they experienced in being in the presence of God. This psalm is divided, if we're looking at it structurally, into two parts. We'll look at them separately today. There is, first of all, verses 1 through 18... And then there is verse 19 to 29. Verse 1 to 18 and then verse 19 to 29. Now because this psalm is found in the collection of the Hallelujah Psalms, 
What that tells us is that as the children of Israel were making their yearly journey to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple, as they journeyed along in a group, they would be repeating or reciting and singing these psalms aloud. And so in the first half of this psalm, verses 1 to 18, what we have is the journey of the people as they're traveling to the temple. It's chronicled. And then in the second part of the psalm, verses 19 through 29, we have the people having arrived at the temple, asking for admittance, asking for the ability to enter in and to make offering and to make sacrifice. Two parts, 1 to 18, 19 to 29. And this psalm, in particular, the last part, verse 19 to 29, is very highly messianic. In fact, portions of the last part of this psalm will be referenced multiple times by our Lord. Portions of this psalm are quoted by the Apostle Peter as he stands in front of the Sanhedrin Council in Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5. And he will again write about this psalm and make application to Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Lord willing, we'll notice those connections this evening. But as we look at Psalm 118 this morning, what we've got to recognize overall is that this psalm, like so many others, is a psalm that reminds us to praise God and thank him for all of his goodness. It is a psalm that emphasizes our need to trust God and to thank him in every circumstance. So let's look at the first part of the psalm. First of all, I want you to notice with me Psalm 118, verses 1 to 4, which is a call to give thanks. It is a call to thanksgiving. And I want you to notice that this particular section of this psalm is divided into two verses, or to two sections. The psalmist says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. In verse number one, we have our reason for giving thanks to God and for praising him. And the reason, according to Psalm 118, verse number one, is that the Lord is good. Notice, he is good. We're not talking about what he does. It's not give thanks to the Lord because he does good. We're talking about who he is. Give thanks to the Lord because he is good, the psalmist says. And God's goodness in general refers to his benevolence. And when we talk about God's benevolence, we are describing a very generic, all-encompassing term that includes things like God's mercy, like God's grace, God's pity, God's patience, God's compassion, God's forgiveness. God is good. And again, we're not talking about what God does, but we're talking about who God is and all of the all of the great and wonderful things that God does flow forth then from his goodness. But notice the second part of the verse. We have the generic statement in the first part, give thanks to the Lord because he is good. But now the psalmist wants us to focus on one specific area of his goodness. 
It's the same area that the psalmist of Psalm 117 focused upon, and that is his mercy. The word mercy, or perhaps your Bible translates loving kindness, or maybe your Bible translates steadfast love. In Hebrew, it's hesed. This word is found of God 126 times in the book of Psalms. And in Psalm 136, it is found, one, it is found uh, excuse me, 26 times alone in Psalm 136. It is one of the most, it is one of the deepest, one of the most comprehensive, and one of the most incredible words in all of the Bible that describe parts of the character of God. That's why it is translated in so many different ways. It is translated as God's mercy. It is translated as God's covenant love or faithfulness. It is translated as God's loving kindness. It has even to do with God's faithful love. And it emphasizes the promise-keeping nature of our God. It is his goodness uh, put in... It is his love and it is his goodness put in action. And it is the foundation upon which everything rests. Now, to the mind of the Israelite, talking about the mercy and the goodness and the faithfulness of God would certainly hearken back to Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 6. This is the occasion in which Moses requested uh, to see God. And uh, he was not permitted to see God face to face, but as he was hidden in the cleft of the rock, the goodness of God passed by. And when it did, here is what was proclaimed. Exodus 34 and verse 6, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. In the Old Testament, when we talk about the mercy or the faithfulness of God, what we have to understand is that God made a covenant with Israel. You remember the passages long ago, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and following. God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham. And what was it? You go to the land in which I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you with seed. And through your seed, all the people of the earth are going to be blessed. And as we fast forward through the pages of Scripture, what we learn is that what God was referring to is what would eventually be the nation of Israel. God redeemed them from Egyptian slavery or captivity. He brought them under the leadership of Moses to Mount Sinai. And while at Mount Sinai, he gave them the law. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He made them his people. He gave them a national identity. And his only condition was that they would follow him and love him and obey him. But even a casual reading of the Old Testament will make it clear to us that they did not keep their end of the agreement. In fact, multiple times they violated the will of God. They turned their backs on God. They were punished over and over again. Eventually, the northern kingdom went into Assyrian captivity, never to return. And the southern kingdom went into Babylonian captivity, where they would uh, be for 70 years until the Persians would uh, arise into power and begin the process of releasing them. And yet, in all of their rebellion, God remained faithful to them. Do you remember the passages in the book of Hosea that we studied just a couple of months ago in our Wednesday evening Bible class? Where God is described as a loving husband, 
where God is described as a faithful father and where God is described as being in mourning and weeping and being in sorrow because of the unfaithfulness of his people. That is the word that we're looking at in Psalm 118 and verse 1. When the Old Testament talks about the mercy or the faithful love of God, it's talking about the fact that God stayed true to his promise even when his people turned their back on him and rebelled against him and replaced him with idols. Isaiah said in Isaiah 54 and verse 10, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Isaiah 63 and verse 9, in, their, in all their affliction, listen to this, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and he carried them in the days of old. Why the call to praise, Psalm 118 verses 1 to 4, because God is good and specifically Because God's mercy endures forever. The children of Israel could look back in their history and they could see event, event after event and illustration after illustration of that truth. I would encourage us to write down in our Bibles Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 to 6 because when we think about the mercy of God, our minds should go right to that passage and it should go to the cross because the Bible will tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 that we once were dead in trespasses and sins but then in verse 4 to 6 the Bible will tell us that it is because of the mercy and because of the great love of God that he has saved us So when we read the call to praise in Psalm 118, verses 1 and 2, for the Israelite, perhaps they think about the exit from captivity, and they think about the deliverance from their enemies, and they think about the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the temple and the ability to go back home. But when we study this passage, we ought to think about Christ. We ought to think about our sin We ought to think about the devastating nature of sin, about how sin can absolutely destroy us from the inside out, about how it destroys families and how it destroys lives and how it ruins people. And then we stop and we give thanks to God because in his mercy, through the sacrifice of his son on the cross of Calvary, we have redemption. It's the call to praise And it's a perfectly good reason to praise God. But now look at the participants, verse 2 and verse 3. Notice that in verse 2 and 3, we have three groups who are mentioned. Let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. It's a reference to the entire nation of Israel. The entire nation, the psalmist says, ought to thank God for all of the blessings and privileges he has bestowed upon them. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Verse 3, this is be, uh, the house of Aaron should thank God because they had been given the very special privilege of serving in the sanctuary and as serving as priests of God. 
Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. This is a reference to every single person. All who faithfully obey God should thank God for how he blesses us. That's the idea and our minds should hearken to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This call to praise, Psalm 118, verses 1 to 4, is comprehensive. It includes everyone. And this call to praise or call to give thanks highlights the goodness and the ever-enduring mercy of God, which is on constant display, both in the history of the nation of Israel, in the scheme of redemption, and even in our own lives. Now, let's look at the reasons. In Psalm 118, beginning in verse number 5, the psalmist will begin to explain his reasoning for this call to give thanks to God. We're thanking God because he is good, and the specific part of God's goodness that the psalmist wants us to see is his mercy. And the specific illustration of his mercy then is now unfolded in verse 5 and following. And the reason, number one, is because the Lord answered. Look at what the psalmist says. He says, I called on the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. The psalmist identifies four things in this section. Number one, he says, the Lord has delivered me. Look at verse 5. He says, I called on the Lord in distress. The word distress is interesting. Looking up the definition of the word, it literally means or refers to a restricting claustrophobic experience. The idea is that the psalmist found himself, by the way, the psalmist is talking about himself as a representation of the people as a whole. So the people found themselves in a restrictive experience. They were pressed in together. Certainly it has to, it has to do with, uh, it has to be in reference to their captivity perhaps. Or even to the pressure they faced from their foes when they returned in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. And yet what the psalmist says is though we were in distress, we called on the Lord and the Lord answered and he says he set me in a broad place. The broad place refers to a place that is wide and roomy. It's freedom. So we have a situation in which the people go from being pressured and pressed in together to a place of freedom and room. Why are we praising God? Because he delivered. And because God delivered, he tells us in verse number 6, there is therefore no reason to fear. God delivers us, verse 5, and so therefore we know what, verse 6? That the Lord is on my side. I know the Lord is on my side. That's the idea. And so therefore I will not fear what can man do to me. This passage and this concept is carried into the New Testament. 
Hebrews chapter 13, Romans chapter 8. The idea of the psalmist in verse number 5 is that the knowledge that God is with him is the confidence that causes him to to turn to the Lord in distress. And catch this point because it's so important. Our fear diminishes in proportion to our consciousness of the greatness of God. Our fear diminishes in proportion to our knowledge of the greatness of God. Why is the psalmist able to say, I am confident, verse 5? It's because, verse 6, he knows the Lord is with him. And so, therefore, there is no reason to fear. And then he builds on it in verse 7. God delivered, verse 5, so there's no need to fear, verse 6. And listen, verse 7 says that because the Lord is my helper, victory is assured. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will see my desire on those who hate me. The last part of that passage, I'll see my desire on those who hate me, has to do with the fact that the godly person, the nation of Israel in this instance, that they will see their deliverance Uh, Their deliverance come true, if you will. They will see their redemption over their enemies and the ones who are trying to defeat them. So the Lord delivered, verse 5, therefore there's no need to fear, verse 6, and because the Lord is my helper, victory is assured, verse 7, therefore, verse 8 and verse 9, two points of application. It is better to trust the Lord than man, and it is better to trust in the Lord than to put even confidence in princes. The nation of Israel learned this lesson the hard way numerous times throughout their history. Over and over again, instead of turning to God, they turned to Egypt. They turned to Assyria. They turned to Babylon. They turned to many other nations and idols and anything that they could think of. And they put their hope and their trust and their confidence in people and the things of the world. But the emphasis of verse 8 and 9 is that you cannot put your hope or trust for deliverance in people. And you cannot put your hope and trust for deliverance in things. And you can't even put your hope and trust for deliverance in kings or princes or presidents or mayors or congressmen or city councilmen or senators or whoever. You can only put your trust in God. Now, by way of application, I want you to put your bookmark in in Psalm 118, and I want you to look with me at the book of Hebrews chapter 13, and I want you to notice how the Hebrews writer will take this passage and put application to it. Psalm 118 verse 6 and 7 says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear, what can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who are for me, therefore I will see my desire on those who hate me. The Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6, Let your conduct or your manner of life be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, what the Hebrews writer does as he takes a portion of Psalm 118 is this. He is writing to Christians who are being persecuted. You know the background of Hebrews. They're contemplating giving up the faith. 
because they want to be done with all of the pressure. But what the Hebrews writer does as he appeals to Psalm 118 is he makes this point. Even if it is the case that in your persecution that your enemies will take away every physical or material blessing that you have, don't worry about it. That's the connection. That's why he says in verse number 5, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with the things that you have. Because it might be that the life in which we're living, as difficult as it is, and the people that hate Christianity as much as they do, it might be that you find yourself penniless. It might be that you find yourself struggling just to eat for one day. And yet the Hebrews writer says, do not give yourself over to covetousness in desiring to hold on to the physical things because those things aren't going to save you anyway. So back to Psalm 118. We're praising God, Psalm 118, verse 1 to 4, and the reason is because he is good And the specific part of his goodness that we're thinking about is his mercy, his faithful love, his faithfulness to his people. And the illustration that the psalmist brings to mind about his faithfulness to his people, verses 5 through 9, is the fact that the Lord answered them, that the Lord delivered them, that in all of their persecution and in all of their affliction, which, by the way, the psalmist will tell us in verse number 18, actually was productive, corrective, and um, instructive punishment. He'll say, in all of our affliction, God listened. God provided. God delivered. And so therefore, we'll trust him. We'll not trust man. Our time is gone this morning. But I want to encourage you to put your bookmark in Psalm 118 And come back this evening at 6 o'clock so that we can finish this psalm together because it's deep and it's rich. And I think that your life will be blessed by studying this psalm in its entirety. But this morning, we've seen enough to remind us of how thankful we ought to be if only because of this first point in verses 5 through 9 that the Lord answers, that the Lord delivers We already talked about Ephesians chapter 2 and the fact that the Bible tells us that God in his mercy has provided deliverance from sin and from all all of its damage and its evils, from its eternal condemnation. God has provided redemption from that. And so we give thanks. But the Bible will also tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that, that God provides a way of escape when we're tempted. God provides deliverance from temptation. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 and 55, that God provides deliverance from death. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, the Bible tells us that God provides deliverance and victory from sin. So I would argue that as we study Psalm 118, just these first nine verses, we have infinitely more reason to give thanks to God than the Israelites did. And the reason is because we live on this side of the cross and we have the ability to open up God's word and to read and see and know things and blessings that were not yet available in their time. So we give thanks to the Lord with our words, with our worship, but most importantly with our life. 
So I ask you this morning as we wrap up our, as we conclude our lesson, how are you living your life? The greatest way to express thanksgiving to God is by giving your life to his service. And the Bible says the way that we do that is by obeying the gospel, by becoming one of his children, believing in the deity of Jesus, repenting of our sins, confessing faith, being immersed in water for the forgiveness.